0: Well, good morning, everyone. Good to be with you. Um, Today, we're going to be talking about two of the minor prophets, Hosea and Joel. Uh, As you all know, minor prophets are not minor because they are minor in importance or any less uh, worthy or important than the major prophets. They are just shorter in length. And today, we're going to be talking about Hosea and Joel. And Hosea was a prophet to the northern kingdom uh, uh, of Israel, and Joel was a prophet to the southern kingdom of Judah. And I realize it in your Bible uh, that Hosea uh, comes first and then Joel comes second. But I want to do that in a little bit uh, different order this morning. I want to talk about Joel first uh, for a couple of reasons. First of all, I don't uh, want to get to, through uh, the book of Hosea and then rush through the book of Joel at the very end and just give it short shrift. I, I think the book of Joel uh, has a lot of very important things to say to us. I realize it's only three chapters, but the, there's a lot in there, and I don't want to miss it. So I want to make sure we give it adequate time. And then secondly, uh, the main event really is Hosea. Uh, this morning so we really want to spend time on Hosea and especially chapter 3 so um, a lot of what we're going to talk about builds up to the main event in Hosea and Hosea chapter 3 and I think if we get there and cover that and then go back to the book of Joel it will just sound anticlimactic so I don't want to do that we'll just cover Joel first and then we'll tackle Hosea and take it from there so with uh, Joel, I have a, a, a couple different sources that I'm looking at, uh, in pr- particular uh, the Bible Project, but also resources uh, from different commentators that I was that I uh, refer to and often get from a website called preceptaustin.org. But today with the book of Joel, what I want to do is cover a couple things. Uh, first, I want to talk about what makes Joel unique, and then secondly, we'll talk about the Day of the Lord, a major theme in the book of Joel, and then... Uh, God's response to repentance, and then Joel's treatment of a future day of the Lord. And then we'll look at some of the questions that the book of Joel raises, and I think actually they are rabbit holes, rabbit holes, uh, distractions, in other words, that can distract us from what I think the key takeaways of the book of Joel are uh, that that, uh, uh, that God has for us today. Uh, so let's take a look at that. Um First of all, what makes Joel unique? The book of Joel, I'm sorry, the word Joel, the name Joel, means Jehovah is God. That much we know. Beyond that, uh, we really don't know that much about who Joel was. The book starts out by saying he was the son of Pethuel, which is good to know, but we really don't know who Pethuel was. So that doesn't help a whole lot. And it's, uh, it's not clear when it was written. Most of the prophets give some kind of indication of, the time frame in which they were written by referencing kings or something else in history. And uh, the book of Joel doesn't, it mentions Jerusalem and the temple, but it doesn't mention any kings anywhere. So, for example, and by contrast, the book of Joel starts this way. Joel chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. And then he starts. And you contrast that uh, with Hosea. 1 verse 1, which starts this way. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beery, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. So those are a lot of kings that are listed, lots of clues, and when a prophet starts the book like that, you can kind of reference where they uh, are in time and get a, an understanding of the time frame in which... The book was written, and Joel isn't like that. Joel just starts, the word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. So scholars disagree. Some will say he was very early. Some say he was a contemporary of Elisha. Um, Some say very late. And uh, one of the interesting things that argues for it being a little late is that um, he assumes that uh, you have a complete familiarity with other Old Testament writings. And in fact, he quotes extensively from other Old Testament writings, including Exodus, Obadiah, Ezekiel, Zephaniah, Nahum, Isaiah, Amos, and Malachi. And if he's quoting from Malachi, um, that would place him more like, you know, like 4 or 500 BC. So some of the scholars will say he was written as early as 850 BC, and uh, others say, no, 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 if he's quoting from these other books, uh, he it's written much later. Now, There's a point of interest here that's an interesting. When he quotes from other books, he doesn't say "thus saith the book of Malachi." He just uses the same phrase. So you could say, "Well, perhaps the Holy Spirit just inspired him to say that phrase in the same way the Holy Spirit inspired Malachi to say that phrase." So they're not necessarily. He's not necessarily quoting from the book of Malachi. But, um, or the other alternative explanation is all these other books, He's that Joel is not quoting these other books. These other books are quoting Joel. Who knows? Uh, but it one other fact about Joel that is interesting that plays into this is that Joel does not go out and list all of Israel's sins. Joel assumes you know. Joel, uh, by contrast with Jeremiah, for example, if you look at the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah... Will uh, the people come to Jeremiah and say, "What? What have we done? What have we done? That's so bad. What are our sins?" And Jeremiah says, "I'll tell you what your sins are." He will blast them. He'll he'll list the sins. You did this, and you did this, and you did this, and he'll tell them what the sins are. And Joel doesn't do that. Joel kind of assumes, "Well, you you know you're sinners. You know you deserve the punishment you're getting." So that kind of argues for that he is saying that he's quoting the other ones that he says, you all know the scriptures like I do. You, you don't need me to tell you what kind of sin you're in and how you deserve God's wrath. Uh, and if that's the case, then he's quoting these others, and then he's, he's a, more of a later uh, prophet that's written. So that kind of helps you place where Joel is in place and time. Now, what does Joel talk about? The major theme in the book of Joel is the day of the Lord. And it starts right off, and it's only three chapters long, but chapter 1 starts right off by talking about a past day of the Lord, and that was a swarm of locusts that had been sent against Israel. And the, um, the commentators look at this and say, it doesn't sound like he's talking about a hypothetical swarm of locusts. It's not like he's saying, well, think about what it would be like if a swarm of locusts were to come over our land. It would be terrible, wouldn't it? He's not speculating. It's, all the way he writes and refers to it is, is, is if he's referring to an actual event that an actual swarm of locusts had come through the nation. And um, from what we know about locusts and also from the way he describes it, it just devastated everything. Devastated hundreds of square miles is what locusts are capable of doing. So it would have just devastated everything. And the way he describes it is just complete and utter devastation of the land. He said what one wave of locusts didn't eat, the next wave of locusts ate. And what that wave didn't eat, the next wave ate. And so on and so forth. And everything was completely devastated. And what he says is that um, swarm of locusts was not just uh, some ecological disaster, wasn't just a coincidence, that actually was God's judgment on us for our sin. And that would have been, uh, in some ways, for the listeners and the readers, uh, a recollection uh, or would have stimulated a recollection of the plagues of Egypt and uh, how God delivered uh, the Israelites from Egypt. And at that time, God sent plagues, but he sent them on Egypt's enemies, and this time it's different. Joel says, no, the, pl- the plague, uh, he doesn't use the word plague, but the locust that came, like a plague, that might remind you of another plague, uh, but this, th- this, this swarm of locusts that came down, this plague, this was God's judgment, not on our enemies, but on us. And so what he does is he says the proper response to that is repentance. And in chapter 1, verse 13, for example, he says, put on sackcloth, you priests, and mourn. Wail, you who minister before the altar. Come, spend the night in sackcloth, you who minister before my God. He's saying the proper response to this judgment from God, the locust that came in, is repentance. And it appears that he also includes himself in that. He doesn't say, all of you need to repent. I need to repent too. Uh, in chapter 1, verse 19, he says, to you, Lord, I call. For fire has devoured the pastures in the wilderness, and flames have burned up all the trees of the field. So what he's saying is that uh, the, the proper response of this plague, uh, this judgment of the Lord that came in the form of a, a plague uh, of locusts, is repentance for you and for me. So that's, the, that's chapter 1, and that's talking about a past day of the Lord. But then he starts talking in chapter 2 about a future day of the Lord. And what he does is he uses, what he says is that the, the locusts that came were merely a metaphor for another wave of locusts. But these are not going to be insects. This is going to be an invading army. And that army is going to come like locusts and sweep across the land. And it's going to be horrible, horrible devastation. Uh, for example, in chapter 2, verse 3, he says, Before them, this is the invading army, the invading soldiers. Before them, fire devours Behind them, a flame blazes. Before them, the land is like the Garden of Eden. Behind them, a desert waste. Nothing escapes them. And then in in a surprising twist, he refers to this invading army as God's army. He says in chapter 2, verse 11, The Lord thunders at the head of his army. His forces are beyond number. And mighty is the army that obeys his command. So he's saying, the locusts, you see, that we just went through, that was God's judgment on us. But they are merely a metaphor for the, real, the future day of the Lord, the real locusts that are coming. That's going to be an army, an invading army, and it's going to be God's invading army. And the shocking thing about this is that the people at the time, according to the commentators, would have said the day of the Lord, they would have thought of the day of the Lord as a good thing. The day of the Lord is a a thing to look forward to, uh, a a great day to anticipate because it's going to be the day when God finally brings vengeance against all our enemies and restores us to our rightful place. Certainly, that's the way the uh, Jews in Palestine at the time of Jesus would have thought about it. They thought, this is going to be great. The day of the Lord is going to come and wipe out these Romans and get them out of here and, and restore our kingdom. It's going to be great. And then uh, Joel comes around and says, "Yeah, the day of the Lord might not be uh, what you think it is. Uh, it's not God's army uh, uh, marching on others. It's against us." And then he says in chapter two verse 11, to kind of put a capstone on this, he says, "The day of the Lord is dreadful. Who can endure it? So what he says is, it's not something to be looked forward to, to look, be looked forward to. It's going to be dreadful. It's going to be judgment against us." And the proper response to that comes in chapter 2, verse 12, uh, verse 12 and 13, where Joel says, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your hearts, rend your hearts, not your garments. It's a famous phrase rend your hearts. Not your garments and what he says is I don't want you going through the motions. I don't want you saying oh, okay I I don't want this evil awful thing to happen to me. I know just what to do I'll I, whatever it is. Tell me what it is. I'll do it you know, I'll, I'll go through the motions. God says I don't want you going through the motions To please me to appease my wrath. I want your hearts rend your hearts Not your garments now. Why would you do that? And here's where Joel quotes uh, Exodus Exodus 34 He says for God is gracious and compassionate God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, and relenting of evil. That's why you should repent. And, uh, and then in chapter 2, the, the second half of chapter 2, the last part of chapter 2, is this poem that talks about God's response to repentance. And I'll read a couple select verses to you. This is chapter 2, verse 18, uh, 18, 19, and 20. It says, then the Lord will be zealous for his land and will have pity on his people, The Lord will answer and say to his people, Behold, I am going to send you grain, new wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied in full with them, and I will never again make you a reproach among the nations. Verse 20. But I will remove the northern army far from you, and I will drive it into a parched and desolate land. So that's an about face. That's a turnabout. First of all, he's saying, I'm going to to be filled with pity on you. Filled with pity for you, and I'm going to restore you, and we uh, give you prosperity, grain, new wine, and oil, represent all kinds of real prosperity, physical prosperity. But then he says, uh, "I'm I am going to remove the northern army far from you, so that that what it tells you is God says the the you're, the invading armies that are going to come and take over you are other nations. I'm going to use them to accomplish my purposes." Uh, that's why they're referred to as God's army. But then I'm going to judge them for doing just that, for hurting you, my people. And I'm, going to, I'm going to kick them out. And then, uh, chapter 2, verse 28, there's uh, is a, is a kind of a lengthy poem. I'm going to read this to you. It's chapter 2, verse 28. And it's a continuation of the theme of God's response to repentance. Uh, Joel 2, verse 28. And afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy... Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And if those words sound familiar to you, they should because those words, that that exact passage... Joel 2, verse 28, through the first half of verse 32, that is quoted by Peter on the day of Pentecost in the second chapter of Acts. It happens right after they all start speaking in tongues, and the people around say, oh, these these men must be drunk. This is is ridiculous. And, And Peter gets up and says, we're not drunk. It's only nine in the morning. This whole episode of speaking in tongues right before you has happened so that the words written in the prophet of Joel might be fulfilled. And then Peter quotes this exact passage from Joel chapter 2, where he says, your sons and daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, and your young men will see visions. And he says, this all has happened in front of you uh, because of what just happened to these events, because of the events in Jerusalem where, where Jesus was crucified. And they were cut to the quick. And uh, this last verse, when he read verse 32a, must have really spoken to them. He says, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And they were. And about 3,000 people uh, uh, came to know the Lord, came to saving faith on that day, and the Christian church was established right there, uh, got its start on the day of Pentecost. So this passage from the book of Joel may have been written as a prophecy purely to set up the day of Pentecost to get the church established. But it also makes reference to some things that didn't happen on the day of Pentecost. So in chapter, in verse 31, it says, the sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. And that didn't happen on the day of Pentecost. Even though Peter quoted that verse. That did not happen on the day of Pentecost. So was Joel merely prophesying about the day of Pentecost? Well, he's probably prophesying about the day of Pentecost, but also future events yet to come. Uh, now to summarize God's response to repentance in chapter 2 God will a defeat the locusts b restore the land and then c bring his divine presence to the people and then if you turn to chapter 3 of the book of Joel and like I said it's only 3 chapters chapter 3 is a series of poems that address these three three things that God is going to defeat the locusts by confronting the evil of the very nations he used to punish his people Uh, Secondly, he's going to restore the land. He's going to bring a hope for renewal of all creation. So this is, for example, in chapter 3, verse 18, he says, And in that day the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk. So a a renewal of all creation. And then thirdly, he's going to bring his divine presence to the people. And this is in chapter 3, verse 17. Uh, For example, he has a verse that says, Joel has a verse that says, Then you will know that I am the Lord your God dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain, so Jerusalem will be holy, and strangers will pass through it no more. Now, that's a quick summary of the book of Joel. What does it mean? Joel raises a whole host of really interesting questions for a minor prophet book that is only three chapters long. So, for example, are tragedies always God's judgment? A wave of locusts comes through the land, and Joel steps back and says, "I want to tell you, this wave of locusts is not just an ecological disaster; it is God's judgment." So today, when we see a tidal wave hit a coastal area, or a hurricane rip through an area, uh, a terrorist attack on a city, do we say, "Well, that's must this was awful? It must have been God's judgment." It, it clearly God is judging sin. Those people must have been really awful sinners. Is that the way it works? Tragedy is God's judgment. Here's another question raised by the book of Joel. Are we responsible for collective sin or just individual sin? I'm a, you know, a a, a Westerner. I like to think of myself as a modern thinker, modern Westerner. And as such, I think of the world very much in individualistic terms. I like to think that I'm responsible for my own sin, but not for the sins of others. But God comes by and says, there are these nations that did these awful things to Israel, and I'm going to judge them. And you can imagine there will be people in those nations that said, wait, well, hold the phone. Wait a second. I, I, would, I didn't invade Israel. I had nothing to do with that. I wasn't in the military. I was back at home, you know, making dinner or, or tending my garden. I had nothing to do with that. Why am I being judged? So what does God mean by that? Does God say, well, there are times when... You know, your uh, collective sin, that you are you are going to be responsible or held somehow responsible for collective sin? Or can you just say, no, I'm only I'm only on the hook for my individual sin, but not the sin of the group that I belong to? There's another, so that's another question. Here's another one. Are Israel-specific prophecies applicable to us? I listened to a commentator who uh, uh, expounded on the book of Joel um, just as I was getting ready to prepare this talk. And he went through and said, Basically, why do you think you Gentiles, why do you think any of this is about you Gentiles? Why do you think any of this is about you Gentile Christians? This is all about Israel. This is about Israel's judgment as judgment Israel. Look, look. there's geographic references in here to Jerusalem and other places. This has nothing to do with you. This is, this is about uh, armies that invaded a, a, a Jerusalem or will invade in the future. And then God's, how God's going to fight those battles in physically in uh, the land of uh, Israel. And how God's going to restore Israel has nothing to do with Christians at all. And here's a fourth question. Which future battle is prophesied here? Is it the Assyrian conquest? The Babylonian conquest? The Roman conquest? Maybe some kind of future Armageddon? So all of these questions are interesting, but I think they're all distractions. That's why I refer to them as rabbit holes. Rabbit holes that we could go down and just speculate on and think about. I mean, just... But I think they take us away from the key, key points, key takeaways of the book of Joel. So let me just, but I'll dismiss them quickly because I, having raised them, I'll just kind of give some quick answers to them. Are tragedies always God's judgment? Uh, the, clearly, the book of Job and a number of New Testament passages were written dis, to dispel that notion exactly, to precisely dispel that notion. Tragedies are not always God's judgment. Could a tragedy be God's judgment? Yes, it could be. But unless you're a prophet, you'll never know. Joel was a prophet. So when Joel saw the locusts, God was speaking through him, and God said, Joel, that's my judgment. Go tell the people. Joel, as a prophet, could know that. But you and I can't look at someone else's flat tire and say, aha! It's God's judgment for your sin. That's why your tire went flat. We don't know. Unless you're a prophet, you don't know. Are we responsible for collective sin or just individual sin? Both. Both. We need to be forgiven of both. Are Israel-specific prophecies applicable to us? Maybe not. But there's still plenty for us to learn From the book of Joel. And which future battle is prophesied here? Assyrian, Babylonian, Roman, Armageddon? Probably all of them. Probably all of them. So, if those questions are the things that we should be dwelling on, what's the point? What are the key takeaways of the book of Joel? What can we really learn? First of all, a couple things. Uh, And a couple of these things I got, uh, thankfully, from the uh, folks at the Bible Project. But I want to expound on these in a a slightly different way. Uh, First of all, human sin and failure wreak devastation in our world. Uh, judgment, uh, God, what we sometimes refer to as God's judgment, is the natural consequence of living outside his will. And I'll just give you an example or two about this. If you uh people say, why is God judging me? Why can't I just live in perfect freedom? I want to do what I want to do. And why do I have to have a God who judges me for doing that? And, and the simple example that helps me is if I think about if I, you know, if I'm if I buy a car and I say, I know the designer of the car said that gasoline should go in this hole over here, and oil should go in that one over there, but no one tells me what to do. I'm a free man, I make my own decisions, and I'm going to put oil over there and gasoline over there. And the car breaks down, and I rail my fist against the designer, and I say, why is the designer of this car judging me? And if I ever met the designer, the designer will say, you idiot, I'm not judging you. I I designed this thing to work in a certain way, and you didn't want to follow directions. You brought judgment on yourself, in other words. Okay, now that's a Overly simple example, I, I know. Let me give you another one um, that, that might resonate with you. Uh, I go sailing sometimes uh, with my brother. My, uh, I, we learned to sail together years ago. He stayed with it. I never stayed with it. But he became a really great sailor. So I go sailing on his boat sometimes. And when we go sailing on the boat, if we, if we get the boat and the sails and the lines, they don't, they don't say ropes on a boat, they say lines. If we get all of that trued up, with the, wi- the waves, the wind, the tides, if we are in line with all those things, it's beautiful, it's blissful, it's one of the most wonderful experiences. It's almost like you can, you can be in perfect quiet moving across the surface of the water because everything you're doing is in harmony with the natural elements around you. Now, if you say, but I want to go this way against the wind, you can do that. We can tack against the wind, but we still have to operate in line with all the, the wind and the waves and obey the, the rules of physics and the principles uh, of, of sailing, and we can have a smooth ride. But if you say, I, I don't want to listen to any of that. I want to do what I want to do. No one tells me what to do. Well, you can, you can try to sail that way, but you're going to have a really, really, really rough ride, and you're probably going to sink. Right, it just it doesn't work that way. And if you say, "The why is the why? The wind and the waves. Why are they judging me?" Well, it's because you made choices. You brought judgment on yourself, and so you could say, "Yeah, but in, in, that's a nice little analogy, good good examples." The second one a little more complex than the first. I get it, I get it. But uh, but why do all these all these things happen in the world? Like those don't seem to have anything to do with the judgment for my sin directly. That's absolutely true. Um, but but the, but ultimately we live in a fallen world. It's our sin that has brought uh, uh, the, Our sin that has corrupted this world uh, and, and it's the it's the fall It's our own sin that has made this a, a corrupt and fallen world and brings brings that kind of judgment on ourselves So human sin and failure wreak devastation in our world uh, That's point number one. Secondly the, the second takeaway God is going to use human sin to accomplish his purposes so here in the book of Joel, judgment comes through all these other nations. And I'll bet if you had asked the Assyrians that later attacked Israel, uh, if, if you had asked them if they thought they were making a free will decision on their own to attack Israel, they would have said, yes, I am. I'm doing this. And yet, that, and, and was that decision sinful? Yes, it was. But was it part of God's plan? Was God using them? God refers to them as his army. God is actually, absolutely using their free will, sinful decisions and incorporating those to accomplish his purpose in this world. It's just like in Genesis, when Joseph's brothers sell him into slavery. And then at the end of the book of Genesis, uh, because Joseph, if that hadn't happened, Joseph would not have got into a position of power where he could actually save a huge part of the world at that time from hunger. And when he's talking to his brothers, he has this great verse towards the end of Genesis where he says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. God took your evil, sinful, free will decisions and incorporated those into his plan. And then the other example, maybe the primary example is Judas, because Judas makes a sinful, free will decision to betray Christ, and yet God still weaves that into his plan and uses that to accomplish his purpose. So, second takeaway, God is going to use human sin to accomplish his purposes. Third takeaway, God longs to show mercy to those who acknowledge and confess sin. God longs to show mercy to those who acknowledge and confess sin. The key message of the book is repentance. Uh, And it's it's not trying to figure out, you know, which future battle it is, what are the clues. If you approach the book that way— you're approaching the book like it's all about breadcrumbs, like God has sprinkled breadcrumbs, and if you are, you know, put your Sherlock Holmes hat on, you can look at the clues and figure it out, and that what God is trying to do is give you a book that's kind of shadowy, but you, if you work hard, you can figure it out, and that's not the point of the book. The point of the book is repentance. The point of the book is for us to understand our sin and God's reaction to our repentance, that God shows mercy to those who acknowledge and confess sin, and all of that... Fourth takeaway, all of that should lead to hope, not only that God will one day defeat evil in our world, but also incite all of us and someday make all things new. Now, those are the takeaways, but here's the problem. How is that going to happen? How is that going to happen? And, and what I really want you to take away from this lesson, or from this book of Joel, if you read it, uh, is uh, all the things I just said already, those great, great takeaways but the big takeaway, if you remember nothing else, remember this, the locusts and the army and the the devastation they caused illustrate the vastness of God's wrath for sin. In other words, when God says, look, your sin is such that the proper and proportional response to it is utter and complete devastation of the land, either through a swarm of locusts or In a much worse and more horrible way, an army that swarms over the land and devastates everything. See, we approach sin so casually. We sin, we sin again, we say, Oh, there I go again. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And you could imagine holding out your wrists and saying, Go ahead, God. Go ahead. Go ahead. Slap me on the wrists. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Won't happen again. I'll try. I'll try better next time. And God says, You don't get it, do you? You don't understand. And I think that is why the book of Joel is here. You don't understand. I want to give you a, a picture. I want to give you a visual picture of the proper and proportional response in me to your sin. And the response I have to your sin is, un- is an unbelievable wrath. And the image I want you to think of is an entire, an entire nation wiped out, a complete and utter devastation. That's a proper response to your sin. That should tell you how big your sin problem really is. We constantly and consistently underestimate our sin problem, and that's the book of Joel is here to say, you don't get it. This is how bad your sins really are. This is God's not, God's not overreacting to our sins. God's giving the proper reaction to our sins. So then what hope is there for us? How do we find hope in that? Well, the answer to that is that uh, there was someone who took the full force of that wrath for us. Jesus won the battle so that God's justice would be fulfilled and we could be restored. And you have to think about that, that the vastness of God's wrath, illustrated by locust devastation or military devastation on a country, the vastness of his wrath, probably, and not just probably, but beyond what we can comprehend, the destruction of the devastation didn't just come down on one country, came down on one person, came down on him, came down on Jesus, so that we could be saved. And that is the gospel according to Joel. So we just finished up with the book of Joel, and now I want to turn to the book of Hosea. I realize, of course, that in your Bible, Hosea comes before Joel, but uh, I uh, wanted to make sure that we covered Joel and didn't uh, give it short shrift, and we uh, uh, make sure we took the time to hear what Joel had to say to us. But now let's turn our attention to the book of Hosea. And uh, what I'm going to do for the book of Hosea is follow, for the first part of it anyway, an outline from uh, Tim Keller, Tim Keller. Uh, uh, has a wonderful sermon on the book of Joel called The, Tr- the True Bridegroom, uh, which I heartily recommend, and I'm going to use basically his uh, basic outline for that, although I'm going to fill it in and then go beyond that. Uh, but I do want to talk about some of those points, and then fill it in with other information that I got from other commentators. So Keller's basic outline for the first uh, three chapters of Joel, which is what he had preached on uh is uh how uh first of all our relationship with God is like a marriage, secondly our relationship with God is like a bad marriage, and then thirdly, how God healed his marriage and what it cost him and what I want to do today is um because when Keller preached on that he preached on chapters one, two, and three, but Hosea has fourteen chapters. hosea three really is the uh, the main event uh hosea three is the uh an incredible a chapter in the Bible and in fact when Keller preached on this he didn't say this, but he referred to another preacher He knew that called Hosea 3 the most significant or the most important book uh, The greatest chapter I think were the words in the entire Bible uh, so I want to get to chapter 3, but we're going to save chapter 3 for the end So we'll kind of talk about chapters 1 and 2 Build up to chapter 3 then kind of do a quick overview of the rest of the book and then come back to chapter 3 at the very end so I want to start first before I go into Hosea with a reading from popular culture. This is a song, and if you're, uh, as you're listening to me, I want you to think if you can recognize what song it is. I'm not going to play the song. I'm just going to read the lyrics of the song. This is the first verse. It goes like this. Want to tell you about the girl I love. Ooh, my, she looks so fine. She's the only one that I've been dreaming of. Maybe someday she will be all mine. I want to tell her that I love her so. I thrill with her every touch. I need to tell her she's the only one I really love. So that's the first verse. And before I get to the chorus and read the chorus to you, at this point, it's, uh sounds like a really nice love song. Uh, this was... Uh, a blues rock song written in 1970. It just sounds like a nice song. He says he's talking about his love for his girl. What's wrong with that? And then he gets to the chorus and it takes a turn, a a rather dark turn. It says, I got a woman, want a ball all day. I got a woman, she won't be true, no. I got a woman, stay drunk all the time. I said, I got a little woman and she won't be true. And in case you're wondering, uh... My, I, I actually looked it up for this talk. My preteen suspicions were confirmed that uh, when you at that time when you refer to someone who, uh, who wanted to ball all day, that was a euphemism for sleeping around. Uh, thankfully, in 1970, when they wrote songs, they were not as explicit as they are now, so they used a catchy little phrase to kind of get across the same idea, but the meaning's very clear. So the second verse of this song, I want to just to indulge me one more minute goes like this. It says, on Sunday morning, when we go down to church, see the men folk standing in line. They say they come to pray to the Lord, but my little girl looks so fine. And I remember hearing that when I was a teenager and thinking, wow, that's really nice. That's really thoughtful. Look at that. This is a song, you know, about these uh, other themes, but they, they have a little, this little phrase in here about going to church, It's about church going. It's so thoughtful. Um, and only later did I realize, well, the only way that makes sense in the context of the song is when he says they come they say they come to pray to the lord but my little girl looks so fine they are all eyeing his girl or maybe worse maybe sleeping with this girl and then he says in the evening when the sun is sinking low everybody's with the one they love i walk the town keep a searching all around looking for my street corner girl so she's either sleeping around or she's a prostitute And then he says, as he kind of winds down the songs, he says, Hey, hey, what can I do? I got a woman. She won't be true. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Hear what I say. I got a woman want a ball all day. Hey, hey, what can I do? By Led Zeppelin, 1970. Now, I'm pretty sure that if you went to Led Zeppelin in 1970, or if you went to them now, uh, if you went to uh, Jimmy Page or Robert Plant and john paul jones and um, if you had said do you realize that when you wrote hey hey what can i do you were writing about and singing the book of hosea out loud they would look at you like you were crazy i'm pretty sure they did not think they were writing and singing the book of hosea out loud but that's what it is that is essentially the book of hosea in a nutshell the book of Hosea starts off um, with uh, God telling uh, uh, Hosea, the prophet, to go marry a woman of harlotry. It's not subtle. It's not like you have to search for the meeting. It's not like you uh, have to read through it for a long time and finally, oh, that's what God's talking about. He says right up front, he says, go to, he goes to Hosea and he says, go take yourself a wife of harlotry or prostitution and have children of harlotry for the land commits flagrant harlotry forsaking the lord so god is saying um i want you to uh be an object lesson i want you to live out i want your life to be a lesson for the people Uh, and then the passage says so he went into gomer the name of his wife was gomer and uh the the point here i think of the passage is that god is saying you need to think of our relationship you need god is saying you need to think of me as your husband as your husband, not just as your king, not just as your father, but as your husband. And this point is not unique to Hosea. In Isaiah 54, there's a verse that says, your maker is your husband. And then in Jeremiah 31, verse 32, uh, the passage says, I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But God goes to Hosea and he says, unlike H- Isaiah and Jeremiah, I don't want you to just say and uh, uh, that that." God is a husband to his people. I don't want you to just say those words the way Isaiah and Jeremiah did. I want you to live this. I want you to actually live it out. I want you to go marry uh, a a woman of harlotry, uh, marry a prostitute, and live with her. And your life is going to demonstrate what that's like and what it's like for me, what it's like for me. So uh, how is our relationship with God like a marriage? And these are three points straight from Keller's sermon Uh, Like I've, uh, like I always say, uh, you're much better off actually getting that sermon, listening to that than listening to me, but I'll summarize them here. He said, marriage must, first of all, marriage must be your number one priority. You can't, if if you make marriage anything, but your number one priority, it falls apart. If you, uh, if you go to your spouse and you say, honey, I just want you to know you are easily in my top five, easily in my, in the top five of my life. You know, first there's my job. Secondly, I got you know the the kids. The kids are you know absolutely right up there. And then there's uh, my hobbies. I love these things I'm involved with and create great causes. But you're right up there. Your Lord knows you're right. If you do that, your marriage is going to fall apart. Marriage has to be your number one priority, and it's exactly the same way with our with our walk with the Lord. Secondly, marriage is a relationship of intimacy. Marriage is a relationship of intimacy. Uh, you, uh, you can hide a lot of things about yourself from other people. You can hide your temper. You can hide your reactions. You can hide your gut. Uh, but you can't hide those things from your spouse. Your spouse sees you for who you really are. And what God is saying here is that you can't know me from afar. I don't want you to just know about me. I want you to experience me. I want a relationship of intimacy with you. That's why he's uh, analogizing to, uh, the, uh, to a marriage relationship says, I want a relationship of intimacy with you. And then thirdly, marriage is a relationship of life-changing potency, a relationship of life-changing potency. Your spouse has a massive power to define you and, reaffine, and redefine you. Your spouse can, can heal and affirm you. So if other people say, you're a failure, and your spouse says, no, I love what you've done, you're a success in my eyes, that has unbelievable healing power and can really transform you. And what God is trying to say is, you need to understand that that's the way I feel about you. And what Keller says is that God is trying to evoke the moment the groom sees the bride at the altar, if the groom is standing at the altar, the way we do in modern Western marriage ceremonies, picture that. The groom is standing at the altar, and the bride comes at the back of the church, comes into view in her wedding dress, for then he sees her in her wedding dress for the first time, and his heart leaps in his chest. The, groom, the groom's heart skips a beat. And he says, oh, my bride, my bride, my beautiful bride. And, he, and he, what he wants to do is run down the aisle to her, sweep her off her feet and say, I would lay down my life for you. You have to think of God looking at you and I like that. See, if you, if you came in today thinking and, and you started listening to this message thinking, you know, God is my master and I'm a slave. God is my king. And I am his subject. Then you end up saying, gosh, I failed you again. I'm so sorry. I screwed up again. It won't happen again. I, I, I'm so sorry. And you, can, you feel like the, uh, the disappointment of letting down your king or your master. But you have to understand that God has this unbelievable uh, aesthetic delight in you. Uh, that he looks at you and says, I, when, I, when I see you, my heart skips a beat. That's how much I love you. And if you see him seeing you that way, that has the power to really transform you and change you from the inside out. Now, that's the way it's supposed to be. That's, that's because our relationship with God is like a marriage. But point number two, our relationship with God is like a bad marriage. And it starts off in the book of Hosea right away. You know, uh, in chapter one, verse two, he says, take to yourself this adulterous wife. Take her to yourself, this adulterous wife. And what he's saying is she's going to be unfaithful to you and she is going to trample your heart and you're going to see what that feels like and you're going to experience what it, what it, what it feels like to be me. So why would God do that? Well, a couple reasons. One is he might, you know, for the, for Gomer's sake, he might have said, look, uh, you have no idea. Men, have, men are using you and abusing you all the time. You have no idea what it's like to feel real, consistent, solid, transformative love. For, so for Gomer's sake, personally, God might have said, this is what I want you to do, Hosea. And then for Hosea's sake, personally, God may have said, look, all the other prophets you, know, you could know this about me, but Hosea, you are going to experience something about me that they never will. You're going to know what it's like, what it feels like to, to be me, to, what it feels like to, to have your heart broken all the time and to have the one you love betray you. That's what you're going to feel like to have someone trample your heart because that's the way I feel and you're going to feel like that. And in a way, the other prophets did. So for Hosea's sake. So, and and the two of them actually have a couple, has three kids together and they're named. Um, I'll skip the first one, but the second one is called Not My Loved One. And the third one is interesting because the third one, the third one, it can be interpreted a couple different ways in, in Hebrew. And in my uh, translation, it says, uh, not my people. And the passage, God says, name this one, not my people, because these people are not my people. But the Hebrew can also just be translated simply, not mine. Not mine. And uh, you have to understand that the, 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 hey, uh, Hosea 1, 2, 3, Gomer, H- 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 Hosea's wife, never stopped her, her, never stopped sleeping around. Uh, she kept, kept, uh, she never stopped her ways uh, of, of harlotry. And, and so, some by the time they had their third child together, you can imagine the scene in whatever they, whatever uh, they used as a delivery room or place at the time. And Gomer gives birth to the third child, and they, then they look up at, uh, Hosea and say, What well, would you like to name the child? And Hosea says, Hey, I'll name the child. Name the child, not mine. Uh, that, that gives you some picture of what was going on in their marriage and how hosea felt about it but then chapter two of hosea is all poetry about um their uh, uh, gomer's adulterous relationship with hosea and our adulterous relationship with god so right away chapter two verse two there's a verse that says plead with your mother plead and this is as if hosea is writing to his own children It's an odd perspective. He says, Plead with you, mother. Plead, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. Let her remove the adulterous look from her face and the unfaithfulness from between her breasts. Otherwise, and listen to the lover's scorn here, the anger. Otherwise, I will strip her naked and make her as bare as on the day she was born. I will make her like a desert, turn her into a parched land and slay her with thirst. There's a real anger there uh, uh, from, a, from, a, from a lover who's scorned. And, you know, I started off this whole portion of this talk with that uh, song from Zeppelin. And in part, I want to do that because it's uh, kind of a cute way of talking about this issue and this problem. But uh, I just know that uh, a lot of people listening to this will uh, have gone through this personally, have gone through this personally. You've had a spouse that's cheated on you, and you know what that feels like, or if you haven't. Had that experience, and fortunately, there are those of us who have not. But if you haven't had that experience, uh, you know people who do, and there there are four men that I know in my life who have had this experience. Um, four close friends who have had their spouse cheat on them, and it's devastating, just devastating, and it 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 it, it breaks your heart, and it and it and it brings about this kind of scorn is kind of anger so god in chapter uh, hosea 2 verse 2 is uh, reaching out with anger and saying you know i will make her like a desert and i will turn her into a parched land and i will slay her with thirst talking about his adulterous wife and then that's not enough that's chapters uh, chapter 2 verse 2 and 3 and then in chapter i'm sorry in verse 4 god turns to the children and turns his wrath upon the children and the wrath for his the adulterous wife spills over to the children. He says, Upon her children also I will have no mercy, because they are children of whoredom. For their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. That's chapter 2, verse 3 and 4. So... By chapter 3, by the start of chapter 3, Hosea has been sold into slavery. Slavery. She's with another lover, she's with somebody else, she's not with her husband anymore, and she's up for sale. We're going to turn to that in a second. But before we get there, a couple things. Hosea is telling us that we have two problems, two big problems. First of all, number one, we don't understand God. We don't understand God. And that's why God is writing the book of Isaiah. God is trying to say, put yourself in my shoes. The whole thing is about empathy. The whole thing is about empathy. He said, I want you to feel the way I feel. I want you to understand what your sin does for me. I want you to understand the reaction I have in my heart to your sin. And we just talked about the book of Joel and what God was saying. in Joel was, I want you to understand my reaction to your sin, how that is akin to complete devastation of locusts, or a military conquest of a country. Uh, and I want you to understand the reaction I have to sin, the, the kind of anger I have, so you understand that that's proportional to your sin problem, so you can understand how big your sin problem is. And that's the book of Joel. But here in Hosea, says, I want you to understand the other reaction I have, another reaction that I have to your sin, and it breaks my heart. And that's the point. Sin is not just breaking God's law. It's breaking God's heart. And if you think of God purely as a king... Or as a master, you think, well, my sin makes him angry. If you think of God as a teacher, you think, oh, it makes him irritated. Just like when I broke the rules in school, the teacher got irritated by it. And you think that's, that's, that's your image of God getting, you know, ah, there you go again. He's irritated with our sin. But until you understand that our sin doesn't make him irritated, it breaks his heart. Uh, and Hosea is here to tell us that and, that. and That's why it had to be written. God says, you don't understand me until you understand that. So, first of all, we don't understand God, but secondly, we don't understand ourselves. Uh, you know, there's a theological controversy that uh, I kind of skipped over when I start, first started talking about Gomer, and that is that some of the commentators say, well, they say, I know it says, you know, take her to yourself, this adulterous wife, but I, the, the commentators say, I'm sure she was pure, uh, pure as the driven snow on the day they got married, Because um, if not, then it's almost like God was commanding Hosea to go into a sinful relationship, and surely God would not have meant to do that. And so therefore, I know it says, take her to yourself, this adulterous wife, but that can't be what it means. So therefore, she must have been pure and... Uh, faithful to him on the day they got married, and later went astray, you see, because it's a book of prophecies, you see, so those passages are prophetic prophecies, ta- prof- passages talking about the way she was going to be. And I think if you understand that, first of all, you make a, an error saying somehow that it's sin to marry a sinner. And it's not sin, it, there's no error it, it says it's sin to marry a sinner, otherwise none of us would ever get married. Right, so that can't be what it means. Um, it, it, uh, but secondly, um, If you take that interpretation of Gomer, it it guts the whole meaning of the book of Hosea. What God is saying is, you were not pure as the driven snow when I met you and then later went astray. It's Romans 5a. God demonstrates his love for us in this, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God says you were dead in your transgressions and sins. You weren't attractive and pure and clean, and I met you, and that's what attracted me. You You were adulterous, you had a wicked heart from the very start. I knew all about, I knew that about you. I knew all about you, and yet I loved you anyway. That's what Hosea is teaching us. So but so, point number one was we don't understand God, and point number two is we don't understand ourselves. Because we'll say, you know, uh, especially I think men reading this passage, you say, wow, you know, this is interesting. You know, God says to a prophet, go marry a prostitute. Wow, that would be hard. You know, you think, that'd be tough. I'm not sure I could... I'm not sure I could do that. I'm not sure I could do that. How, you know, I that'd be really difficult. And when you do that, you're you're putting yourself in the narrative uh, in as Hosea. You're inserting yourself into the narrative as Hosea. And we are not Hosea in this story. God is Hosea in this story. We are Gomer. We are Gomer. We're the unfaithful one. We're the faithless one that uh, that. Uh, uh, gave God no reason to love us and yet God loved us anyway We are gomer and you have to understand gomer. I mean gomer Is like the complete picture of sexual addiction and all our sin is like addiction It comes out in jeremiah uh, where jeremiah talks about the people and how they love foreign gods and they, they at one point in the book of jeremiah the people say, you know, it's no use. It's no use I love foreign gods. I can't stop. It's no use and that's the language of addiction. That's people saying, I can't, I know I shouldn't, I know I should quit this thing, I just can't. I just can't. And that's Gomer. Right from the day they got married, she kept, she never changed. Uh, she never stopped sleeping around on Hosea. And and that's us. <laughs> so there's a message in there for us too. God's saying, you have to understand how bad your sin problem is. We're constantly giving ourselves to other gods. We're always going to other gods and thinking, I know, yes, yes. Even as Christians, we say, yes, 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 Lord. I know yeah, you are, you you love me, and I love you, and I'm um, saved, and I'm going to be in eternity with you. But there's this other thing, and if I could only have this other thing, then my life would be complete. We're constantly giving ourselves to other gods. Gods, you know, and uh, the thing is, all our other lovers say, "Give yourself to me. Climb the ladder up to me, and I'll reward you." And for a time, that can happen; they can reward you. But there's There's only one God who says, I gave myself for you. I climbed climbed down the ladder for you. Every other God that we give ourselves to says, kill yourself for me. And there's only one who dies for us in our place so that we may live. In fact, there's another passage here. Someday we'll talk about that in Ezekiel 16. Um, And Keller preaches on this in an amazing sermon called God Our Lover. And there's a passage there in the verse that says, all these other gods you give yourself to, at some point they will turn and hack you to pieces. All the other gods will betray us. And that is what's happening to Gomer. She's given herself to these other gods. She thought they were doing something for her and maybe for a time they were. But by the time you get to chapter three, she's in slavery and she's up for public auction. So how's God going to resolve that? Hold that thought. We're going to come back to chapter 3, but first a quick flyover of the other chapters in Hosea, the rest of the book. Because understanding it as a uh, marriage relationship really is the way to understand chapters 1 through 3. But there's another way to understand the rest of the book, and that's really an, uh, using a legal analogy. So the uh, the chapter uh, chapter 1 through 3, chapters 1 through 3 was about the prodigal wife, and the remaining chapters are about the prodigal people. And that is the message of judgment and the message, uh, uh, the message of judgment in chapters 4 through 10 and then in chapter 11 through uh, 14 to the end, a message of restoration. And in the message of judgment, really it's a legal analysis. There's the indictment, the verdict, the plea, the reply, the crimes, and the judgment. I'm going to read that list again. The indictment, the verdict, the plea of Israel— the reply of the Lord, the crimes of Israel, and the prophecy of judgment. So I'm gonna we'll fly over those very quickly. I'll give one or two verses for each, because then after that comes the message of restoration, and we'll turn back to chapter three. So the indictment. Uh, this is Hosea four, and a verse for this is Hosea four verse six a. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I also will reject you from being my priest. And Bible study like the one we're doing now, Bible for me personally, studying the word to do, do like do the uh this 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 Bible study or the podcast are, are a way to say, I don't want this passage to be true of me. I don't want God to say, look, you're destroyed for lack of knowledge. But it's clear that God does not just want head knowledge. If you look at a verse like Jeremiah 9, verse 24 Jeremiah nine twenty four says let him who boasts boast of this that he knows and understands me Not just knowing me not just knowing about me. God says I want you to understand me as well And that's really the point of the book of Hosea It's not just filling yourself with head knowledge. I want you to feel what it's like to be me Let him who boasts boast of this that he knows and understands me, but This this verse is a big indictment. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge Secondly, the verdict in Hosea 5. Then I'm going to read Hosea 5, verse 15. I will go away and return to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. In their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. So God says, I'm going to bring affliction. But there's a point to it. There's a reason for it. It's there to bring you to repentance. But that's the verdict. So that's the indictment and the verdict and now the plea. And the plea of Israel is bittersweet. I'll tell you why. It's in Hosea 6. And it starts like this, Hosea 6, verse 1. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, but he will heal us. He has wounded us, but he will bandage us. That's Hosea 6, verse 1. And then I'm going to skip and read Hosea 6, verse 3. And this for a long time was my favorite verse in the Bible. I actually had this on a plaque on my desk in college. Hosea 6 3. So let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going forth is as certain as the dawn and he will come to us like the rain, like the spring rain watering the earth. So beautiful, so beautiful. A call to spend your life knowing, knowing the Lord. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. And the reliability, the dead certainty, says his going forth is as certain as the dawn and the beauty, the picture, the refreshment that comes from knowing him. He'll come to us like the rain, like the spring rain watering the earth. So it's so beautiful, right? And this is the plea of Israel. It's in in their voice saying, you know, come, let us return to the Lord. But it's bittersweet because there's really no record of, there was any kind of revival like this in the Northern Kingdom at all. And so what Hosea was doing is he was writing the script for them. He was saying, these are the words you should say. These are the words you should be saying if only you would. But they didn't. They never did. They're beautiful words, saying, let us return to the Lord. He'll come to us. He will. But they wouldn't do it, and they didn't. So that's the indictment, the verdict, and the plea. Now, the reply of the Lord, this is Hosea 6, verse 4. I'm sorry, Hosea 6, verse 6. Famous verse, he says, For I delight in loyalty... Rather than sacrifice and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings and in other versions, they translate it slightly differently in the new international version. It says I desire mercy and not sacrifice and in the English standard version. It says I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. But either way, you get the idea. It's another indictment. God says I don't want you going through the motions of religion. You know, I I don't want you just giving burnt offerings. I want your heart not, he says, I don't want just head knowledge. Think of the verse we read earlier about, you know, people perish for lack of knowledge. I don't want just head knowledge. I want a changed life. I want you to know, I, I want to connect with you and have a relationship with you. There's a great song by a Christian singer who died long ago. His name is Keith Green. And he says, to obey is better than sacrifice. I don't need your money. I want your life. And Jesus actually quotes this Verse, Hosea 6, 6, uh, twice, in Matthew 9, verse 13, again in Matthew 12, verse 7, I'll read the first one. Matthew 9, verse 13, he says, but go and learn what, this is the voice of Jesus. He says, but go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. That's the reply of the Lord, Hosea 6, verse 6. Now, that was the indictment, the verdict, the plea, and the reply. Now, the crimes of Israel chapter 7, verse 14, And they do not cry to me from their heart when they wail on their beds. For the sake of grain and new wine they assemble themselves, they turn away from me. And what God is saying is, you know, these people honor me with their, their lips, but their heart is far from me. He says, you're, going, you're crying to me, but you're not crying because you're really genuinely sorry or because you want a relationship with me. You're crying because you don't have prosperity. You're crying because you're uncomfortable. You're crying because of your circumstance. He said, I don't want that. I want your heart. So that's the indictment, the verdict, the plea, and the reply, and now the prophecy of judgment from Hosea 8. Hosea 8, verse 7, famous verse. For they sow the wind, and they reap the whirlwind. That's the judgment. So all those things, the indictment, verdict, plea, reply, crimes, judgment, they're all the message of judgment of Hosea, from Hosea chapter 4 to Hosea 10. Then you get to Hosea 11 to the end, and it's not the message of judgment, but rather the message of restoration. And rather than go through all that, I just want to read one verse because I think this is emblematic of how God feels and what he's trying to get across in the book of Hosea. It's Hosea 11, verse 8. He says, How can I surrender you, O Israel? My heart is turned over within me. All my compassions are kindled. See, what he's saying is, you are tearing me apart. I'm a just God. I've got to I've got to have got to punish disobedience. But yet I'm a fully loving God. I love you. And it's and it's exactly like that song I played in the beginning like about how someone is just torn apart by a lover who has betrayed them. So uh that outline we just went through is actually uh, from the Ryrie Study Bible. It's a legal outline of the book of Hosea, but there's another author, another a uh, commentator named Robert Chisholm, and he had a uh, very much more simple outline for the book of Hosea. He said the book of Hosea is basically back and forth between judgment and salvation, judgment and salvation, and he outlines the book. They'll say, for example, part of, part of the first part of chapter 1 is about judgment, and the second part of chapter 1 is about salvation. First part of chapter 2 is about judgment, second part is about salvation, back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And that gives you the feel for the whole book, Is God saying, look, I'm just torn apart with you people it tears me apart. And even in that Zeppelin song that I was quoting towards the end, when uh, the singer is just kind of fading out, he starts singing. Yeah, no, yeah, no, yeah, no. And this is how you feel. If you love someone who's an addict, if you love someone who's betraying you, you say, I love you, but you're killing me. I love you. But how could you do this to me? You know, I love you, but this is just tearing me apart inside. And so it's just it's astonishing to read Hosea 11, verse 8, when he says, How can I surrender you, o Israel? I can't give you up. My heart is turned over within me. This is like heartfelt anguish. God is speaking and writing this down. It's amazing. All my compassions are kindled. I love you, but you're just killing me. How am I going to resolve this? So, That brings us to Hosea 3. And it shows us how God does resolve this. So, I'm going to read Hosea 3. It's a short chapter. We'll read it a paragraph at a time. This is Hosea 3, verses 1 and 2. Remember, uh, uh, Gomer is up for sale uh, at an auction. Okay? Hosea 3, verse 1. Then the Lord said to me, Go again. Love a woman who is loved by her husband, yet an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the sons of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes. Verse 2, so I bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a half of barley. Okay, a couple quick notes before we get to the meaning of this. Um... First of all, what's the deal with the raisin cakes? Yeah, it's kind of it's it's it jumps off the, out of the passage. It sticks out like a sore sore thumb, and if you don't address it, it becomes, it becomes a distraction. And I think the the meaning of it is that it, if it sounds petty when you read it, it I think it, it's meant to be petty. It's like as if you were talking to someone else today and you said, you know, you're you're leaving this church, you're going to another church. You're only going to that church because of the cupcakes they serve after the service. You you're going there for the cupcakes. And you say it that way derisively as if to say, that's a really, really petty reason to make a decision like that. And God is saying, yes, you know, the Lord loves the sons of Israel, even though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes, of all things. So if it sounds petty, uh, I think it's meant to be. So that's one thing. Secondly, at this point, God's saying, you know, I want you to go... Uh, uh, by uh, Gomer back. So she's with somebody else who owns her as a slave and has put her up for sale. And the, the writer does not give us a whole lot of details, so we have to make some inferences. Uh, it could have been her pimp that was owned her, and yet it's, you know, said she's uh, used up. Can't rent her out anymore, so I want to cut my losses and sell her and get what I can out of her. Could have been that she was in debt Maybe she was found that she could make money as a prostitute and started spending money that she didn't have. Because at that time, you could have been in slavery because you were just deeply into debt. And she couldn't pay her debts back. And now she's up for sale. But uh, either way, uh, she's owned by someone else and she's up for sale as a slave. And at that time, there's another important little historical note. At that time, the going rate for a slave was 30 shekels. So she goes for 15 shekels. And a Homer and a half of barley. So the the commentators have two ways of resolving that. They'll say, first of all, um it it uh they'll say, well, the going rate was thirty shekels, so therefore, uh a Homer and a half of barley must have been worth fifteen shekels. And it's as if Hosea didn't have, you know, that much cash on him at the time. He said, Well, I got fifteen shekels, but I also have this barley that's worth fifteen shekels, fifteen to fifteen, there's your thirty. There you go. Uh that's one way of interpreting it. But other commentators say, no, the, the barley is not a throwaway comment. The barley is significant. Uh, barley was an offering for someone accused of adultery. And that comes from Numbers chapter 5, verse 15. In Numbers 5, verse 15, we read, The man shall then bring his wife to the priest, this is if she's in adultery, and shall bring as an offering for her one-tenth of an ephah of barley meal. He shall not pour oil on it, nor put frankincense on it so there's no dressing it up. For it is a grain offering of jealousy, a grain offering of memorial, a reminder of iniquity. So the the, the barley is not just making up the 15 shekels he didn't have in his pocket. And it's not just a throwaway comment. It's meaningful. It's there because it's an offering for adultery. Now, when Keller preached on this, he painted. a Great word picture, and I'm going to take it and kind of run with it. Um, he says, if you think about the way this culture would have worked at the time, from what we know, the the uh, uh, an auction like this would have taken place in the town square. So it was a very public auction, and they, to, to, to get a slave like this, she would have been stripped naked, because if you're bidding on her, you have to know what you're getting. And so if, if she's in that situation... Now remember, we are Gomer in the story, right? So think of yourself that way. What would you do if you're like, I'm in the public square and I'm stripped naked. You're going to clench your eyes tight as, close as tightly as you can because it's the only dignity you have left. And you say, okay, brace yourself because now you're going to find out what you're really worth. So she would have been standing there in the public square, naked, naked and ashamed, eyes closed, and she would have heard voices. For her, two shekels, three And then somewhere in the bidding, she would have had to have heard another voice calling out 10 shekels. And she would have said, wait a second, I know that voice. That voice is my husband. What is he doing here? After everything I've put him through, what is my husband doing in the bidding? And you have to think that... When, he's in the, when Hosea comes to the public square And he's bidding for her He's probably These are not big cities you Remember these are fairly small towns he's, he's probably bidding against guys That have slept with his wife And they would have looked at him and said mm-hmm. You? What are you doing here? What kind of humiliation? What are you doing here? Eleven shekels And Hosea would have looked at him and said I know I know Make it twelve. And they would have said, You are you have no you are some kind of idiot to still be loving her like this. I, I don't get it. I don't get it. Fifteen shekels, but that's it. That's it. That's all she's worth, not a penny more. And Hosea would have said, Okay, fifteen shekels, I'll match your fifteen. I'll match your fifteen. And I'll throw in some barley. And this is pure speculation on my part, okay not not pure speculation. You could hear the auctioner running the auction saying, "Barley we you know we really we don't really take barley around here, and Hosea is saying, "Yeah, I know, but I've got my reasons sold, sold to the man with fifteen shekels and some barley, and then in the next verse, he gets a chance to talk to her. Uh, before he walks up and talks to her, he would, have, he would have walked up to her, having won the bidding, taken off his cloak, wrapped it around her immediately to cover her shame, and then been face-to-face with her and had a chance to speak with her. And maybe he hadn't seen her in years. Maybe he had a chance to talk to her in years. And so what do you think he says the first chance he has to speak to her? What does he say? Does he say, Gomer. You're mine now. I bought you. I own you. Now you're going to pay. Is that what he says? Does he say, for everything you drag my heart through, do you know you're going to stand here and listen, and you're going to feel what, my, what I feel. You're going to feel my wrath and my fury. You're, you're going to pay. I want you to know what it's like. Does he do that? Chapter Hosea 3, verse 3, he speaks to Gomer Hosea speaks to Gomer and he says then I said to her you shall stay with me for many days you shall not play the harlot nor shall you have a man so I will also be with you and the commentators say what he's doing there is he speaking to her with words of restoration he says I want I want you back you're going to have to change you're going to have to change But I want you back. And part of the interpretation of that, the part of the reason the commentators say that is the beginning of Hosea 3. And the Lord says, when God gives him the command to go to the public square, he does not say, go down to the public square and buy back Gomer as your slave. The command the Lord gives to him at the beginning of chapter 3, he says, then the Lord said to me, go again, love a woman. Go and love her again. So when he had a chance to say to her face to face there, for the first time, one on one, he says, you're going to stay with me. I want to build a home with you again. I don't want you as a slave. I want you as my, as my wife. And, and it's, it, it evokes a memory of the prodigal son, when the prodigal son is running back in Luke 15, running back to the, who's, who's gone astray, the younger brother who's gone astray. And he's running back to the father and he's practicing his speech and he says, I'm not worthy to be your son. I'm just going to be your slave. And finally he gets in front of his father and the father runs down the road and kisses him. And kissed him. And the son delivers his speech. He said, Father, I've, I've, I've really screwed up. I've really messed up. I am not, I'm not worthy to be called your son. I just want to be your slave. And the father says, No, I don't want a master-slave relationship with you. I want a father-son relationship with you. And the same exact thing is happening in Hosea 3. Hosea is saying, I, I own you. I could demand a master-slave relationship with you, but I don't want that. I don't want a master-slave relationship with you. I want a husband-wife relationship with you. I'm the husband. You're my bride. Now, there's no record of Gomer at all after Verse 3. There's no record that she went back to her ways of harlotry. But I, and, and so you have to kind of, there's just conjecture, really. But I like to think that to be consistent with the rest of the book, to be consistent with the meaning of the rest of the book, that the two of them would have stayed together. They would have built a, built a home together. They would have grown old together. So I like to think that when I'm in glory... And, I'm, I, and when I'm in that great receiving line of all the minor prophets, meeting one after the other, meeting, you know, Obadiah, meeting Amos, you know, meeting Joel, how you doing? Shaking their hands, nice to meet you. And if I finally get to Hosea, and I say, Hosea, and we start chatting and talking for a little bit, maybe Hosea will say, Jim, Jim, wait, 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 stay here a second. There's someone else I want you to meet. And Gomer will come around the corner. And I'll look at Gomer, and I'll say, Gomer, I read your story. I read your story, and it gave me so much hope to think that if someone like you, who represented me, could be here and reestablish their relationship with their true husband, then I could too. And I think that at that moment, Gomer will look at Jose and say, yeah, Jim, Jose and I were just talking about this. We were talking about you before you got here, and quite frankly, we can't believe you're up here either. And I'll say, I know, I know, what a joke. I can't believe I'm up here either. So those are the sweet words of restoration that Hosea says to Gomer. Now, right after that, all of that is meant to be a buildup of the words of restoration that Hosea says in the next few verses. So Hosea chapter three, verse four, here's what Hosea says. Uh, right after he speaks those words to Gomer, he says, For the sons of Israel will remain for many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, and without ephod or household idols. Afterward, the sons of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they will come trembling to the Lord and to his goodness in the last days. So there's a huge theological problem, actually, in the book of Hosea. And the theological problem is that Hosea is supposed to represent God in this story. But where did God ever come into the marketplace? And at great cost to himself, you know, go through the humiliation and the pain and buy us back. Where did that ever happen? And the key here is the reference to David in Hosea 3 verse 5 because it says afterwards the sons of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. Now there's nowhere where the, there's prophecy or command to say that in the in the end of time or in a future uh future restored heaven and earth or in any other time in the future that the that we're going to worship not only God but also David. We're not going to worship David as an equal to God. So this is not a reference to David. This is rather a reference to someone who was to come, the son of David, who was going to sit on that throne. And we know that because Peter talks about that in Acts chapter 2. So just like when we looked at the book of Joel, uh, the second chapter of Acts, Peter was illuminating for us what Joel was really talking about now. In the second chapter of Acts, Peter illuminates this idea of what it means that David is going to be on the throne. This is Acts chapter 2, verse 29 through 32, Acts chapter 2, verse 29. Peter says, Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on the, on the throne on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. The reference here to David is the reference to the true and better David, the son of David, who would pay a huge price to buy us back. You know, Matthew 9, in Matthew 9, the disciples of John the Baptist come to Jesus and in Matthew 9, verse 14, it says, Then the disciples of John, John the Baptist, came to him asking, Why do we and the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. And if you listening to this and you don't know, fasting is a discipline of just not eating, right? So, so they're saying, Why are we going through these disciplines of fasting, of not eating? And you're not. Your disciples don't do that. And Jesus replies to them. Matthew 9, verse 15, Jesus said, it says, And Jesus said to them, The attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. And I'll bet the disciples of John fell over in their tracks, and they would have said, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. You're the bridegroom. You're the husband. You're the husband Isaiah talked about. You're the husband Jeremiah talked about you're the bridegroom, you're the husband that Hosea lived out. And Jesus would have looked at them and said, I am. He is the bridegroom, he is our husband. Jesus paid the price to buy us back from all of our enslavements, all the things we're addicted to. Jesus is the one who comes into this world, bears our shame, and at great cost to himself, cloaks us with his righteousness so he can bring us home and that is the gospel according to Hosea thanks for listening to this episode of the Gospel Addict Podcast feel free to contact us via email at gospeladdictpodcast at gmail.com stay tuned for our next episode and remember on your worst days you're never beyond the reach of God's grace and on your best days you're never beyond the need of God's grace See you next time.